0: Australia, the innovation nation. Let's have a look. Hello everyone, Florian Heiser here and welcome to another episode of Heiser Says. I still have my stein of coffee that I'm working through and I thought we would look at this article from ABC because it's essentially repeating what I've been saying for a very long time. It's asking the question, is Australia an innovation nation or are we just lucky? Now before we jump through this article, I will go to one of my favorite websites, the Observatory of Economic Complexity. Now this is a great website for getting an understanding of all of the different economies in the world. And one thing that really is quite shocking to a lot of people is how primitive the Australian economy is. And by that I mean the complexity of our economy. And we can judge that by looking at what we're exporting and how much manufacturing is involved. I mean, iron ore, here you go. It has an export value, um, an RCA, and a percentage of 20% of our exports at the time of this data was from iron ore. And overall, our economy, we're 59th in the world with regards to complexity. I mean, we're lots of essentially products, simple raw materials, and foodstuffs that we're exporting. Now, what are we importing? Manufactured goods, advanced manufactured goods. I mean, let's compare iron ore to cars. It's a very easy understanding of how much more complexity is in the manufacturing of a car to the mining of iron ore. Iron ore, you could have done thousands of years ago with simple hand tools. Today, sure, there's machinery, it's quite advanced, and there's engineers involved in the process, but the end product has not changed that much. It's still a simple product. And the car that we're bringing in, that's quite advanced. There's a whole lot of support industries. There's technology involved in it. All this other stuff comes together to manufacture the car. Iron ore is just a part of it. So that is the issue that Australia is facing. I thought it was funny when people keep saying that we're an innovation nation, innovation nation, whereas an architect, we try to specify Australian made products. It is getting harder and harder. We were doing mining jobs where we would specify Australian manufacturing toilets. How many of them do you think are made in Australia now? Just toilets. We had a job where we were renov- rent- retrofitting upgrading lifts in a high rise tower and i was up in the lift motor room and i noticed all the engines the 40 year old engines the motors at the top to take the lifts up and down were manufactured in newcastle and now they were all manufactured overseas and they only had salespeople in australia so let's read through this article and i think we'll see we'll see so is australia an innovation nation or beneficiary of dumb luck people wasting away in paradise that's how Peter Garrett described Australia in a Midnight Oil song back in 1982 he was lamenting Australia's complacency and willingness to rely on foreign powers for our economic fortune yes, yep I would say that's pretty true I mean I wonder if if he would have realized his political aspirations back then But a recent Harvard University study shows those lyrics are even more apt now. The latest Harvard Growth Lab Atlas of Economic Complexity ranks Australia 93rd, lagging Kazakhstan, Uganda, and Senegal, and only just ahead of Pakistan and Mali. Yeah, guys, that's despite being Sorry, that's despite Australia being the eighth richest country in the world, according to the study, with a national per capita income of $54,093 US in 2017. Indeed, while Australia has almost trebled its national income from Harvard's earliest data back to 95, our complexity ranking has dropped from 57 with 22 of those places lost just over the decade to 2017. Now the Harvard method, their atlas, is slightly different to the Observatory of Economic Complexity, but, you know, it's saying the same thing. So why do we rank so poorly? It's because Harvard's index measures the complexity of the goods and services we export, and three of Australia's top exports are natural resources. In fact, according to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, in 2018, Australia's three biggest exports were coal, iron ore, and liquefied natural gas, with education and tourism coming in fourth and fifth, before the top ten was rounded out by gold, aluminium, beef, crude oil, and copper. Well, there you go. I mean, there you go. That just tells you the complexity. And our tourism, just because the weather and education... We're a cheaper version in the United States. We're English. And would education still be up there if they were actually enforcing the English language requirements for a lot of these foreign students that were coming over? So, even tourism ranks down on Harvard's index of complexity, although it doesn't appear to distinguish between holiday travel and international students, perhaps indicating some lack of complexity in the index. Oh, what a jab there. Economist and UTS industry professor Warren Hogan says it's somewhat inevitable that Australia will rank poorly. One of our greatest strengths in this country is our significant natural resource endowment, partly a result of our size and also our geology, he explains. So our lack of complexity in our exports is largely a function of that resource endowment. Largely, but not completely. Canada, Brazil and Russia are also well endowed with natural resources but are inside Harvard's top 50. All three countries have much larger advanced manufacturing sectors than Australia including aerospace and automotive. And remember that guys, cars aren't even made in Australia anymore. Holden's gone. It's gone. Professor Hogan says the persistently high level of the Australian dollar during the mining boom has been a problem. The flexible Australian dollar has been very useful cynically to help take some of the heat out of the economy and to help it when it's soft but that high level sorry but that high level is because of uh, the resource exports has hurt some industries well yes it has everyone who is manufacturing any of these goods and services that we're importing here in australia is just not going to be competitive it's that simple It's just not competitive. It's so much cheaper to buy two or three from China than to get one made here in Australia. So build on what you're good at. But while industries like car manufacturing are largely dead and buried in Australia, there are positive signs that the nation can reverse its slide down the complexity rankings before we fall behind the likes of Liberia, Zimbabwe, and Mongolia. I mean, well, Mongolia is actually getting a a development boom. at the moment with a lot of natural resources but Liberia yeah we don't want to be in their ranks. Harvard's growth lab recommends that countries look at expanding into more complex exports based on the less complex industries where they are already strong. Australia is already doing this in resources with the nation's industry running some of the most sophisticated mining operations in the world with a strong focus on automation. Okay, that sounds good, but everything that's automating it is imported, and what's the automating automation going to do? It's going to make it cheaper to run, resulting in less demand for employment. Like we looked at a video earlier today about a gentleman buying how, renting accommodation in Blackwater. You don't need it now when the mines have finished construction. So, moreover, the expertise that has developed in the mining sector is expanding into new markets. A case in point is the Hunter Valley-based electrical engineering firm AMP Control. It employs around 1,000 people globally, with 850 in Australia, mainly near Newcastle in New South Wales. The company began by supplying electrical fit-outs for the and region's underground coal mines, but Chief Executive Rod Henderson says it has recently diversified into other types of mining, road and rail tunnels, and electronics for renewable energy systems. I mean, good on him, but that's not innovation, is it? Not at all. (laughs) And that's not really manufacturing. It's supporting construction. We recognized about five years ago when we started to make a real play into the energy infrastructure markets that we have to be a well-balanced company that not only operates in the mining sector, he tells the money. Well, yeah, that's very smart with the fact that we're not going to put any large coal-based generation back into Australia it was obvious to uh, sorry it was obvious to us that it was going to go to a more decentralized generation market and we've positioned ourselves quite well to take advantage of that the issue with this decentralized generation is cost increases for consumers but that's another topic so while it is expanding into new areas Mr Henderson says AMP co- control or AMP control couldn't have done so without the skills and industry base generated through its mine related operations we can take a lot of the technology that amp control has developed over the last 30 years or so and transitions that very nicely into the road or rail tunneling environment yeah that's not that big a difference guys okay i don't know why they're even talking about that that's that's not what the harvard proposal was looking at it was looking at you know, strict intervention into the economy to facilitate manufacturing of particular industries and very primitive ones. So, emergent biotech powerhouse. So, I don't know if Australia is an emerging biotech powerhouse. I'd, yeah, anyway, let's have a read. There are some complex industries where Australia is already a global leader. Blood Products and uh, vaccine giant CSL is now the fourth biggest company on the ASX by market value, worth a staggering $117 billion and rapidly catching up with Rio Tinto's $128 billion valuation. Other major international success stories h- include hearing implant maker Cochlear and ResMed, which makes equipment to treat sleep apnea but there are hundreds of up-and-coming Australian biotech firms vying to make it big on the global stage. The industry's peak body, Oz Biotech, held its annual conference in Melbourne this week and released its latest snapshot in the sector. So are they saying we're a bedpan company? Country. The number of Australian life science organisations increased 12% over the past two years, resulting in a 5% increase in sector employment to more than 243,000 people. Yeah, that's still not that many people. That's still not that big a sector of the economy. It feels like they're clutching at straws here. And yeah, they've they've ignored... I need to get that Harvard one again to say what sectors we're looking at, because we've discussed it before. Moreover, the companies are also getting bigger and accessing the share markets to raise funds, with a 15% increase in ASX-listed life science firms since 2017 to 161 with a total market value of around $170 billion. Okay, that's only a little bit more than one company. Leading the sector are medical technology and digital health firms, followed by pharmaceuticals and food and agricultural technology. One of the up-and-coming firms is Poly Nouveau, which makes a biodegradable, body-safe plastic for regenerative medicine. Its first product, NovoSaw BTM, is already in use in Australia, the United States and other countries. It is an artificial dermis, the main layer of skin below the surface layer epidermis. Novasorb is being used to treat large, deep wounds and burns that have damaged or destroyed the dermis, and has already saved the lives of at least one patient with burns to 95% of his body who would have died without access to the new treatment. Chief Executive Paul Brenham expects sales to double every year for at least the next five years. Five years ago, I was the sixth employee. Now we have 60, he says. Out of those, we do have 20 in the U.S. There you go. We'll be expanding further, both in Australia and the U.S. and the U.K. in the next six months. So, so there will be further stuff added in those places. I bet you most of the growth will be in the U.S. I bet you. I'll put a carton on that, guys. While Polynova operates internationally, Norvo Sorb is entirely manufactured in the company's Port Melbourne facility before being flown to markets around the world. And Paul Brennan wants to keep it that way. Well... Good on you, mate. Good. We'll see how long that lasts. When you talk to investors, one of the first questions they say is, when are you moving the manufacturing offshore, he says. I think it will become a cultural norm for Australians to think that way. Yes, it has. Where I challenge that is we have a lot of smart people in Australia. This is a product that is relatively straightforward for us to make. Once you understand the process and the details of it. So what he wants to do, why he's keeping it in Australia, is to ensure that the IP doesn't get stolen. Maybe, if you send it over to China. What do you reckon? Australia has the skill, the capacity, and the ability to do this. So I think if there's more belief within our own culture that Australia can go back to a can-do mentality, a lot more can be done. So government is support essential for future success. But the success of Novosorb is not just down to Polynovo. The substance was originally developed by the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Science and Industrial research organization. Paul Brenham says the future health of the CSIRO is vital to the biotech sector and innovative Australian industry more broadly. If we want to be smart then having institutions like the CSIRO as robust institutions I think is essential for our long-term ability to be that smart economy he argues. Indeed the Australian biotech sector is roughly split down the middle between publicly funded organizations and private companies. However, while publicly funded research generates ma- many of the scientific advances needed for new products, it is generally the private sector that commercializes them and brings the wider economic benefits back to Australia. Well, there you go. There you go. The chair of the sector's peak lobby group, AusBiotech, Julie Phillips, says research and development tax incentives are essential to convert pure science into marketable products. That has been... Absolutely critical for small life science companies, she observes. Keep in mind these small companies may take many years before they actually get revenue from their product development. Cash is critical to these companies. So the R&D tax incentives for pre-revenue companies actually gives a cash rebate annually on their eligible R&D spend. We need to be internationally competitive. The R&D tax incentive is viewed as absolutely essential. Well, this is the thing. This is feeling like a spin piece for CSIRO and research tax incentives for small portions of the workforce. But not every industry is happy with the government support it receives. We have quite a sizeable operation these days in Scotland and the support that our local business gets up there from the Scottish government is far far superior to what we're getting down here, AMP controls Rod Henderson says. Okay so they're, they're spruiking him as the hero of Australia and he's, he's He's getting better deals in Scotland. <laughs> Manufacturers need to stand on their own two feet and be viable in their own right to survive, but government should be backing and supporting that a lot more than they currently are. That sentence you just said doesn't make any sense. Is he calling for a reduction in maybe payroll tax? Maybe a reduction in fuel excise? Maybe the government investing in some you know, traditional coal generation so power prices get down. Why not? economist Warren Hogan agrees that there is an important role for government industry support given the current global trends. We're in a world where industry policy is quite widespread to the point where our biggest trading partner China is one big industry policy you could argue he observes. If you can identify market failure, that is some problem in your domestic economy either elevated energy costs or an under-skilled workforce or the fact that your international competition is getting support from their government, you can make the case for sensible sensible government interventions, strategic industry policy. Well, this is the thing. We're competing on a global scale with a mercantile economy, which isn't playing by the WTO rules, is it? So it makes it quite difficult for us as a nation. And there is the challenge. So the government can pick winners, but are these winners going to be good for all of us in the end? And this constant push for renewables and sustainable energy, is it just a short-term grab for political votes with long-term consequences that's going to have much more of an impact than all of these few little bespoke biotech companies that they're picking up? Or this innovative energy company that went from underground coal mines to underground tunnels? And... Is getting more benefits in Scotland so I mean there's some fundamental issues here guys in Australia we're a primitive country there needs to be more incentives for people to actually value add to products here what do you suggest let me know what you think in the comments people are putting a whole series of suggestions I would argue for special economic zones around the country to mitigate red tape and government intervention to try and spur some manufacturing back in Australia. to so think outside the box, maybe allow government to get out of the way rather than having the government pick winners that may go nowhere. Anyway, guys, thanks for watching. Like, share, and subscribe. If you like my content and want to help me produce more, I do have Patreon and subscribe star link below. I also have referral links that you can use for Amazon and similar things. I appreciate all your help Take care, everyone. Have a great day.